I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Indo-Pacific, we'll talk fractures within the White House, and much, much more. Stay tuned for The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, this has been an interesting couple weeks and couple months. Media reports have emerged this week that paint a bleak picture of infighting and factions within the White House regarding trade policy. How accurate do you think these portrayals are? I mean, I'm hearing, you know, everything's all good, but is it? Well, first, I want to welcome Andrew back. It's a delight to have him. Uh, This is a fan demand. I was in a meeting the other day and I was asked specifically, where is Andrew? Oh, come on. I serve at the pleasure of the trade guys. It's good to be back, guys. I had to admit that the coup has failed and, and you've returned. We're delighted to have you back. So for our listeners, we moved to a new day, and I think it's going to work just perfectly. So our taping day, that is. Anyway, to get back to your question, my sense is they're largely accurate. I mean, the media tends to emphasize the negative rather than the positive. So I think some of the, the scenes are probably less dramatic than they're, they're painted. I have to say I, I live for the moment when an administration would ever admit that they made a mistake or that something, or that they were not agreed on something. I mean, I think the last time the president admitted he made a mistake was Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs. I mean, presidents just don't do that. Everything they do is a success. Every decision they make is wise. And there's never any dissent internally, you know, if, if you listen to them. And none of that is true. And I, I think, frankly, that, that people would have more confidence in their government if every once in a while some senior official would say, well, I really screwed that one up, uh, you know, and I'm going to do better. In this case, I think the divisions uh, that have made the news, and this is really, you're talking about an article that, that Bob Davis, who was with the Wall Street Journal for a long time, uh, wrote this piece for Politico, did a very inside baseball of, you know, who was where, mostly on the China debate. And I think he's got it right. They are divided. I think the division is a little bit more complicated than, than he suggests. I, I think he, he suggested that it was like a pro-trade group and then two other groups. Uh, the only really pro-trade person I see in the administration in the traditional pro-trade sense is the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, who I think gets market access, gets the importance of trade, certainly gets the importance of exports. That's her portfolio. Everybody else talks about workers in the environment all the time, and they have real difficulty uh, getting past that and, and focusing on what uh, some of our foreign friends you know, referred to as tangible benefits. Uh, and that was the issue that that uh, I think is going to trip up the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is also about China, but commercial here. Matt Goodman and I did a paper on that. And in the process, Matt talked to some people from other governments and they used the, the, the phrase, you know, we need tangible benefits, which is a nice way of saying what's in it for us. And uh, the answer, you know, is... Not much. And this is where this gets back to the division in the administration. They don't want to talk about market access, which is the big tangible benefit. And by saying in advance, they don't intend to submit whatever is agreed to to Congress. 
what they're telling the, the Asians is we don't intend to make any concessions. We intend for you to make the concessions, which was sort of the Trump approach to things. Uh, it's more delicately framed. You know, when Wilbur Ross, late secretary, former Secretary of Commerce, addressed this issue. He said, basically, you know, the foreigners have been robbing us blind for 20 years, and now it's our turn to make them pay back. The Biden folks haven't put it quite that bluntly, but it's the same thing. I think on China, you know, it's a little bit different because it's not really about uh, tangible benefits as much as it is, you know, what do we do when we're in a situation where we really don't expect negotiations to produce anything. And that's the dilemma that Bob talked about in his piece. It's the dilemma that I've talked about on multiple occasions. It's, a, it's the dilemma that Catherine Tai addressed when she spoke at CSIS in October. You know, she said, we don't expect these negotiations to go anywhere, but we're going to do it anyway. And to me, the division in the White House is between the people who say, the Chinese are not going to give us what we want. They're not going to get rid of subsidies. They're not going to get rid of forced technology transfer. They're not going to treat our companies fairly. They're going to continue to pour massive amounts of money into technologies uh, where they want to create global champions that will attempt to eat our lunch. It's our job to make sure they don't do that. And if we know they're not going to agree to us, what's the point? And then the other people, which I think Ambassador Tai is an exponent of, we need to keep talking anyway. One, because... There may be some low-hanging fruit we can gain. Two, even if we're not going to get anything, if we're going to take some further aggressive action, we need to create a narrative that justifies that. We need to set the stage. And that means we need to have a negotiation that fails. Because only after we have a negotiation that fails can we, can we then say we're going to go on and do something else. And third, frankly, you know, in, in the diplomatic world, if you don't know what to do, you have a meeting you know, and you talk. So what they settled on was, let's talk about why you haven't met your phase one commitments. And that's perfectly safe because they haven't. Uh, and they were commitments. So hang them on that. And we're going to do that. I just think that has a short half-life. You know, 2021 is in the history books. There's only so much time you can spend talking about what didn't happen uh, in 2021. Eventually, they've got to go on to something new. And there, I think, they're divided because they genuinely don't know what to do. So who is this dispute between? Is it between Catherine Tai and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor? Is it between their staffs? What is it? I think it's between Catherine and Jake. I mean, th things tend to flow downhill. So if, if the principal is in, a, in one place, all of her staff are in another place. Although the interesting gossip point, which will muddy the waters, is that Catherine's chief of staff, Nora Todd, is going moving over to the National Security Council to work for Jake Sullivan. Oh, okay. Interesting. It could manifest itself in any number of ways. But first, let's stop and consider the irony of how heavily criticized the prior administration was on its approach to trade. We're now in year two of the Biden administration, and what we have in place is Trump policies without the tweets. I mean, that's... That's where we are, all right? I don't think they wanted that to happen, but if that's not what you want, you have to do something else. There's a matter of urgency here that, that you can only have matters under review for so long before people figure out you don't really want to do anything. So we'll, we'll, we'll set that aside. The second is the idea of the Indo-Pacific is vitally important to the economic future of almost every globally engaged company in America. 
It is more than half of the world's people. It is the home of the global middle class. And so U.S.-China tensions will continue to be important. But, you know, really since the, since the end of the Cold War, call it 30 years now, we've been trying to figure out exactly how to create sustained engagement in the region on an economic standpoint. Our allies and partners have been patient with us and have done a lot of it, spent a lot of time hedging between the United States and China, but they're not going to wait forever. And it, uh, I really think, you know, it's time for us to have the confidence uh, that this really is the most innovative, dynamic, competitive economy that the world's ever seen. And that's a great hand with which to enter into economic negotiations and discussions. So let's get on with it. Let's move on for a second to the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which Bill mentioned a minute ago. So after you know, being relatively quiet for months about the contents of this Indo-Pacific economic framework, USTR filled in some of the details this week. What did they say? And do you guys think this is a step in the right direction? It's definitely a step in the right direction. They need a policy. Everybody has said from the beginning, uh, the region is exactly as important as Scott said. And the Asian countries have made very clear that, you know, if you want to convince us all that America is committed to Asia, sending an aircraft carrier through the South China Sea every other month doesn't do the job. You need to have an economic framework there. You need to have an economic presence that is serious and, and durable and permanent. And this is the administration's proposal. Uh, most of us have said and continue to say, and our paper on the subject began by saying the right answer would be TPP or to or CPTPP now. And maybe they get back to that. I think eventually they will, but they clearly are not there right now. So this is plan B. And uh, what we have tried to do, what Matt Goodman and I try to do is tell them, if you want plan B to succeed, here is what you need to do, which is provide some tangible benefits and build in some binding commitments. And what is clear so far is that they've taken the tangible benefits off the table, which is worrisome. They've said it up front, again this week, uh, it won't involve market access, that we're not going to take it to Congress for review. They have a menu approach, which will be interesting. This has a mixed record. It's not worked in some contexts. It's not, it has worked in other contexts. It is that we're going to, we, the United States, are going to propose principles and, and commitments in a number of areas, decarbonization, Digital trade, I think, will be the biggest one. Trade facilitation, infrastructure. I think they're, they've also added export controls and, and maybe some, and, and corruption as, as issues. And uh, there may be a shifting group of countries. Not everybody will subscribe to all of those, but people will, some countries will subscribe to some of them. Once you're in, the idea is, you can't pick and choose amongst the menu within the group. In other words, if you participate in the in the digital negotiation, that's going to be a digital thing. Then you're either going to be in all of it or you're not going to be in, in it. But you might be in the digital one and not the environment one, or you might be in the environment one and not the trade facilitation one, or you might be in all of them. I think the thing that we worry about which the administration has not answered yet, is, is this going to end up being uh, a negotiation amongst the usual suspects, meaning Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, Singapore, countries that are already closely allied with us on, on various issues, countries that 
many of which already have digital trade agreements. We have one with Japan. Singapore has ones with Australia and, and uh, New Zealand. You know, countries that are already mostly there on a lot of these issues. When we talk to the foreigners and when we talk to other experts in Washington, they universally said, you really need to look at Indonesia and Vietnam. And if you don't have one or both of them in this game, you really are not advancing the ball very much. You know, what you're doing is bringing in a bunch of other countries that are already with us. I think Bill's right. Look, we have domestic homework to do. There is not a domestic consensus on what we ought to be negotiating when it comes to international rules for digital trade and e-commerce. And I think uh, a serious international negotiation can help force a domestic consensus. But if it were me, I certainly wouldn't be evading Congress at this point. I'd be finding ways to engage them and get them get them subscribed to what you want to do. Otherwise, we're negotiating w without a target. And Scott, how, how binding can an agreement be without formal congressional approval? It depends what changes are made to U.S. law. But, uh, but I think our negotiators would be in a stronger position if they had serious consultations with the right committees in Congress and could present this as a true, this is the American position versus this is what we're, we're thinking about doing or fixing to do. And are we having a hard time getting to consensus on what the American view of this is? Well, we haven't done it yet. I don't know that it's all that hard because there are enough of these digital agreements around, including ones the United States has made. There are model measures, have been model measures in APEC for years on these things. So th there's there are best practices. We could sort this out. But we just don't have an American position at this point. So that'd be a place to start. I think that's a way to move this forward. Look, our, our trading partners in, in the region are not going to wait for us forever. Let's engage them and do it on an area where there's a lot of benefits to U.S. business. And the, the administration can certainly make the case that when you're making these kinds of international rules, when the U.S. is engaged, you wind up with better rules for everybody. That's what we're doing this for. There's also a growth message in there somewhere when they want it. But that's how I'd uh, take the next step, at least. Let's wrap that one up. Let's get to the next thing. So the next thing is, what is the Competes Act and what is happening on it? Well, they're voting on it now, maybe even as we speak. It is, in a gross sense, it was the House response to the Senate USICA bill. There are parts of it that are familiar. It's, it's the House's response to how do we compete with China. It includes the CHIPS Act, funding for semiconductor uh, you know, fab development. It, can, it contains a number of provisions that have already passed the House individually on authorizing uh, additional innovation measures in the National Science Foundation, the National Labs, NIST, a whole bunch of things that I don't normally spend a lot of time dealing with. There are differences between the House and the Senate, but they're not huge. They are, in a sense, the expression of, of the running faster part of the strategy. You know, we've had this conversation before. If, if you're in the race, part of the way to win is you run faster. This is how to get America running faster. That part is not particularly controversial. I mean, there are pieces where the Senate has taken a slightly different approach or the amount of money is different, but those things can be reconciled uh, in conference. The bigger differences are that the House Compete Act contains some climate provisions that the Senate bill does not, which the Republicans oppose. I don't think they're particularly aggressive climate provisions, but the, the Republicans have opposed them. And probably more important, the House bill does not contain 
a bunch of anti-China provisions, largely on export controls, that House Republicans wanted to get in. They failed to get them in in committee when the committee took up part of the Foreign Affairs Committee took up part of this. All those amendments were defeated. So the bill doesn't have them. Uh, I don't think they'll get in on the floor. So it's made the House bill more partisan than the Senate bill. The Senate bill had, I think, 18 Republican votes. The House bill is likely to have, I don't know, probably somewhere between zero and 10 Republican votes uh, would be my guess, which is unfortunate. The other area of controversy in the House bill, also unfortunately, are the trade provisions. Uh, and some of them are controversial because they were not taken up by the committee. They were not marked up. I mean, the, 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 the NIST stuff, the National Science Foundation stuff, the National Lab stuff, all of that was taken up by the normal legislative process. The committees voted on it, and it actually went to the House. It was debated and passed. So passing it again is not going to be hard. The trade stuff includes reauthorizing the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which I think is a very good thing, but which the committee didn't vote on. Uh, it has House fixes to reauthorize the GSP and miscellaneous tariff bill programs, which are in the Senate bill. Those two are really the only trade things in the Senate bill. Uh, the House approach is different, and there's some controversy over the differences, but there are differences that can be worked out, you know. And then the House did two new things that the Senate didn't address at all. One is a provision of Congressman Blumenauer's on the de minimis requirement, and Scott can speak to this. It's, it's the requirement that uh, below a certain dollar threshold, packages that are valued below that amount don't have to pay any duty uh, and don't go through really detailed customs paperwork. And Congress raised that limit from uh, that floor from $200 in 2015 to $800, the result is a huge number of packages coming in, a lot of them containing fentanyl, and they're coming in without scrutiny and without paying duties. And some people have discovered that if I break down my shipment of T-shirts into, you know, 100 packages that are valued at less than $800 each, I can get them all in without paying the duty. I mean, I think there is a problem here. Um, Blumenauer's solution has flaws. It's designed to uh, really deal only with China except I think it also traps uh, Vietnam. But, you know, it, it treats country, it, it exempts, basically, it, it takes some countries out of this. And if you treat countries differently, then you have a WTO problem, number one. Uh, and number two, you all also invite transshipment. So my $800 package from China isn't going to be duty-free anymore. Fine, I'll send it to Vietnam and they'll remail it, you know, and nobody will know. So you're just asking for trouble, but it's not been vetted. There's not been a hearing, but it's a problem. I mean, I, yeah. it's a serious problem. It needs to be dealt with. And the other thing they've added, which is even more controversial, is government review of outbound investment. Uh, this is something that Congress decided not to do in 2018 when they were reviewing investment rules. And now it's back, thanks to some very persistent members of Congress. I think it's redundant. We have export controls to deal with outbound technology flows. This would control the money, not the technology. I don't think we need to do that. I think it creates an enormous bureaucracy, a 19-member committee chaired by USTR, which is not the right person to do this. They don't have a lot of programmatic experience like this. And in the end, you know, it's, it's intended to deal with a, a very small number of investments. The way it's drafted, it won't. And companies are going to end up submitting all their proposed investments to the government. 
I don't think we need to go there. So I'm unhappy. Yeah, Scott, what do you think about all this? I mean, one thing I wanted to ask, too, is that, you know, the Democrats who have introduced this have claimed that the product is a bipartisan work across committees with support on major components. But that doesn't seem to be the case in the House. That's a nice sales pitch. okay. but as I was reading about the process by which this bill's on its way to the floor, couldn't help but realize we needed we need Billy May as a trade guy guest, even though we'd have to resurrect him to do so. Uh, because, but wait, there's more. We have a 3,000 page bill now. We have 261 amendments in order. There were 340 rejected. So I guess that's the good news. But uh, who knows what the final state of this bill is. But for me, the concerns on the trade items uh, are the, the ones that Bill mentioned, at least my concerns on the trade items. Look, we recently reauthorized export controls and investment screening and chose not to do outbound screening at the time. I think that was a wise decision, but it wasn't that long ago. And there's, there's not a record of fact finding that would say it's, it's time to do outbound screening now. So this, we, we probably ought to think about this stuff and deliberate before we, we jump ahead. This is classic gamesmanship. This is the way the system used to work. Because what the House has done is said, you know, we're not just going to take the Senate bill. I mean, the House is incapable of ever believing the Senate could competently draft anything. I spent 17 years in the Senate. I think they are capable of competently drafting something. But this is the House view, and it's fixed. But then what, the, what did they do with this bill? Uh, they did what they always used to do, which is they took out things the Senate wants because they know they're going to face them in conference. And they loaded it up with a whole bunch of things they know the Senate doesn't want because they know they're going to have to give away some things to get the stuff they really do want. So this is like classic horse trading on the Hill. And I think that's good. I mean, I think it's good that they're getting back to playing the game the way they played it for 200 years. And I want to see them go to conference and I want to see them horse trade because the result, first of all, will be a better bill. A result is a lot of this stupid stuff will go away because one side or the other won't buy it. The House will have to go along with some stuff the Senate wants. And the Senate is going to have to go along with some stuff the House wants. And, but collectively, they can get rid of some of the stupid stuff. I think it's a healthy development. But if you're the media and you're just focused on the TikTok, you know, what happened 10 minutes from now, for yeah. 10 minutes ago, what's going to happen now? It looks like a horrible mess. But if you take two steps back, you know, the game is on and I think it's a healthy game. And you can say, if you really take a couple steps back, by George, we have democracy. Well, look, it's uh, the process. The process really works well. The, I mean, Madison was a genius when you when you get down to this in terms of of, of the way the the House and the Senate are forced to cooperate, even though that's the last thing they want to do. So I, I'm I'm looking forward to the final output. In the meantime, we've got to deal with this dog's breakfast of uh, three thousand pages. Yeah, Russell Russell Long and Lyndon Johnson and Robert C. Byrd were pretty good at this too. <laughs> Guys, it is so great to be back. Let's end on that. And we'll be back next week. And next week, Scott and I can talk Super Bowl because we do not have the Super Bowl this week. But I think both Scott and I are pretty unanimous on the fact that we're all in for the Bayou Bengals. Yes. Yeah. It is unanimous here. Nothing against the L.A. Rams. I love the city of L.A. Everybody knows that. Love Cooper Cup. The guy is just incredible. And there's a bunch of other great players on that team, too. Uh, Aaron Donald, but you know, we got to go with Joe Burrow. Indeed. Well, we'll see how it, how it plays out, as they say. Okay, guys, thanks so much.
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.